0: Hi, listeners. There are one or two swear words in this episode. So if you are with someone who shouldn't hear that or doesn't want to, you have been warned. I loved it as a visitor last year, and it definitely made me go, now that I've done this, like I can do it. Like I've been through the hardest part. Now I know what I'm getting into. But I will say it's so financially challenging. There's so little help. And I have so much privilege. I choose to live in this country I had a day job, I have a day job. I was able to crowdfund through my community. I'm a woman, I'm white, I'm able-bodied, I'm neurotypical. I have all these privileges and I had a hard time. All my friends with disabilities will not go to fringe on the basis of it is so ableist and it is so not friendly to disabilities. And then the racism that has been documented, especially in recent years, but for many, many years before that. That's Christina Murdoch, creator and performer from Dangerous Giant Animals, a show about disability from the sibling's perspective that premiered at the Fringe in 2018. In the same year, a show called Queens of Sheba also premiered. Written by Jessica Hagen and Ryan Calais Cameron and produced by Nouveau Riche Theatre Company, Queens of Sheba follows a group of four friends who try to go out for a fight night and are turned away from a nightclub for being too black. The show was equal parts moving, uplifting, and funny as four women battle misogynoir where sexism meets racism, a term that was new to me when I saw it at the Fringe in 2018. Fringe audiences loved it. The show received critical success with multiple four and five star reviews and was regularly sold out. I felt lucky when I was able to get a ticket. Queens of Shiba won the Stage Edinburgh Festival Award a high-profile award coveted by any fringe performer and show. It went on to win the Off West End Awards, that would be like Off-Broadway Awards for my American listeners, for Best Performance Piece. It had multiple sold-out runs at Soho Theater in London and is currently doing a U.S. tour at the beginning of 2024. Hooray! Queens of Sheba fixed racism at the fringe. We talked about it. We laughed.
1: We cried. It's fixed, right? someone said that they went to one of the Fringe events and there was no one of color there and no one was interested in talking to him or hearing what he had to say. When you are POC, that's how it feels and there's no disregarding. Like It feels like it's because of the color of your skin.
0: That was what Sarah Vigis, senior producer at Nouveau Riche and creative producer at Sarah Vigis Productions said to me shortly after Fringe 2023. Sarah joined Nouveau Riche in
2: 2022. So There's loads of different barriers I- I- I find it knackering, and that's even before I did the show Standing Up. Doing the show Standing Up is a choice that I have made. And I'm having to get massages, and that's costing me 65 quid a pop, which is a barrier. But in real terms, the big barriers, I think, are the accessibility of the venues. I am Aaron Simmons. I am a stand-up comedian that cannot stand up. But this year, I am standing up. I've said that almost a thousand times this year.
0: Aaron Simmons is a stand-up who, in 2018, was performing his first fringe show. He has done three fringes since, including 2023, where I spoke to him. Aaron has been named a finalist for BBC New Comedian of the Year, nominated for Broadway World UK Best Comedy Show, and has been named Jewish Comedian of
2: the Year. He has been seen on the Russell Howard Show, Comedy Central, and BBC. Some of the venues I would love to play, I can't. And not for me personally, because I, I can get into somewhere that is not fully accessible. But I will not do a show that a disabled person cannot get into. And I recognize that there are some people who are not as able as I am. And so to be like, fuck it, I can get into this venue. So that if you can't, I'll get enough able bodied punters. That's not what, A, I would want to do, and, and B, not what I think anybody should do.
0: Sarah and Aaron's voices may sound familiar because you have heard from them in previous episodes. In episode one, Sarah talked about the dreams of those going to the fringe and the possibilities of the fringe.
1: I guess you're looking at like Phoebe Waller-Bridge, right? And, and Fleabag. Like that could happen. It probably won't. Not to be the Debbie Dana, but the likelihood is low. But still, like there is that dream. In episode two, Aaron told us how he does two
0: shows at the fringe to break even.
2: The size of venue that I do at the paid fringe, with the way that I do it, I can't make money. Because I spend money on PR, money on production, money on a director, you just can't sell enough tickets to make that money back. I do two shows a day to break even, and that's the only way that I can afford to do the festival.
0: Through Neve, Hannah, and everyone we have spoken to so far, we have established fringe is hard even if everything lines up perfectly, and especially when it doesn't. But what if you are disabled in a city of hills and just over half the venues are not accessible, or you have to deal with racism on top of the challenges of putting on a daily show? What is the Fringe like for you? For this episode, we are going to hear from two artists facing those challenges and what they are doing to meet them. I'm Molly Merwin, and this is the penultimate episode of Fringe Benefits Edinburgh, a story about the Edinburgh Fringe Festival.
2: In 2014, when I started, I did three gigs and then our last family holiday together was to come up to the Edinburgh Festival. I was already quite a big comedy nerd and I knew that people came up to the Edinburgh Festival every single year. And for me, it was like a real sort of stamp of approval of that's like what proper comedians do that's what i wanted to do
0: aaron simmons has just done his show baby steps at the 2023 fringe
2: i set myself some sort of aspirational goals of if i achieve this i will feel like a proper comedian and those things were to do to be paid to do 20 minutes to do a a spot at the comedy store and to do an Edinburgh run, and yeah, come 2019, I'd done all the, all three of those things. That was quite a big moment. And actually, for the 2019 Edinburgh run, I I quit my job in the July, so it was swing single swim at that stage, which is tricky for a guy in a wheelchair, but. Yeah, it was a real sense of, I'm going to go for this. And then I quit my job and I managed to do it well enough in Edinburgh that I didn't have to go back to it. And then I've been a full-time stand-up ever since.
0: But don't misunderstand like I did. Aaron still didn't make money on his fringe debut.
2: I just didn't lose a significant amount of money that I had to go back to the jobs. When I did my debut, I was quite lucky. I, I worked up until Edinburgh. I bankrolled myself with my with my day job and then... I paid for all the costs before Edinburgh and then it sold well enough that it didn't cost me a couple of thousand pound extra on top of that.
0: Aaron has cerebral palsy, which is the name for a group of lifelong conditions that affect movement and coordination. According to Scope, a disability charity in the UK... One in 400 children in the UK have cerebral palsy. The Cerebral Palsy Alliance says that 18 million people worldwide has cerebral palsy. The condition affects each person differently. Around 40 to 50 percent of people with cerebral palsy use a wheelchair. So when people with this condition find themselves in a city like Edinburgh with giant hills that even an able bodied person breaks a sweat going up, what is it like for
2: them? I mean, you mentioned the hills. That is the biggest thing. Uh, the cobble streets don't make it any easier. That's that's not great at all. I think there are a lot of things that people don't really realize until you come up to it. Like, I certainly didn't realize. So I'm a very athletic disabled person. Like, So I used to play basketball for Great Britain. I, I used to powerlift. I can walk a little bit, I can get upstairs, I can carry my chair upstairs, I can push a long distance. Even I find it really knackering to do. And that's even before I did the show Standing Up. Doing the show Standing Up is a choice that I have made. And I'm having to get massages and that's costing me... Sixty-five quid a pop, which is you know a barrier.
0: If you look Aaron up on YouTube or saw him on the Russell Howard show, you would see he was standing up. But Aaron uses the aid of a wheelchair to get around most of the time and in his shows until this year.
2: Last year, I did the show at the Edinburgh Festival. Really well, really happy with it. But one guy said something not very nice about it. Said they didn't do a proper show. And all I did was wheelchair jokes. And so I thought, fuck you, I'm going to do a proper show. I'm going to do it on my feet. And I thought that was just a funny premise of a show. And then I thought, well, let's see if I can do an hour. And the challenge of it was intriguing to me. Can I write an hour of jokes that don't mention a wheelchair once? So I just thought, fuck it, I want to do that. It'll be a challenge. It'll be interesting. It'll be different for me. And I'm always looking for the next thing. And that was quite a clear choice for me I was like that's the show I want to do and then I had the complete blank page of all you want to do is talk about standing up on your feet so
0: Aaron is using the challenge of people not accepting him as a, quote, proper comedian for fuel for his creativity. His show I attended was about two thirds full, pretty good for anyone at the fringe and had the most disabled punters I had seen at the festival the entire time I was there.
2: I get a lot of disabled people coming to my show because, A, I'm a disabled person. And they want to hear a disabled voice. I understand that. But B, I'm in an accessible venue. And of course people are going to come. They're going to go, okay, these are the venues I can come to. I'll come see that show. And I think it's a real shame that's still the case. I understand that Edinburgh is a beast in and of itself and every cupboard gets turned into a venue. And if you get a chance to have a room on the Royal Mile, there's up seven flights of stairs and you have to meet a wizard and answer three riddles and all of this kind of stuff, you're going to take it. It's one of those things that is such a cyclical thing. When you try and think of disabled talent, there's not a lot of disabled talent out there, particularly on TV. People like Rosie Jones are doing fantastic stuff for disabled people and it, and she's wonderful and I cannot speak highly enough of her. And we need people like Rosie to show that disabled people can bloody do this. Because if you don't have people like Rosie showing that we can do this, people doing open mic gigs or or doing club gigs aren't going to make their venues accessible because why would they bother? Because they can get enough able-bodied acts. And so it's one of those things that becomes a cyclical nature. If you're not doing any accessible gigs, how are you going to get any disabled acts? And if you don't have any disabled acts, why would you ever make your venue accessible? And so it's just a, a vicious circle. So I think the more we make our voices heard, And the more options we have to showcase what we can do in an accessible room, the louder our voices become, the more that people can't ignore us and the more generalized accessibility becomes.
0: According to a research briefing published by the House of Commons, there are around 16 million or 25 percent of the population in the UK with a disability. According to the World Health Organization, 1.6 billion people worldwide have a disability. That's roughly 16 percent. In the UK, a disabled person is defined as someone with a physical or mental health condition or illness that has lasted longer or is expected to last 12 months or more and whether the condition and or illness reduces their ability to carry out day-to-day activities. Disability rises with age. Mobility is the most common disability, but there is vision, hearing, memory, mental health, stamina, and social behavior, to name a few. So when we think of these figures, how does the fringe stack up? The Fringe Society makes it very easy to find accessible shows on their website and to book. They have a specific email, WhatsApp, phone line, and in-person assistance. When booking online, there are filters for various accessibility needs. And when filtering for each, you will find at the 2023 Fringe, there were 85 captioned shows, audio description for 17 shows, sign performance for 61 shows, relaxed performances, which are shows for those with sensory needs, for 101 shows, audio enhancement for 448 shows, wheelchair accessible toilets for 1,614 shows, and 2,159 shows that are wheelchair accessible. And to remind you, there were over 3,500 shows at the 2023 Fringe. So, for almost all of these accessibility needs, except for wheelchair access, there were less than 50% of the shows that met the need. If you needed a sign, auto description, or captioned show, the accessibility need was met in less than 5% of shows combined. To put that in perspective, 12 million people in the UK have some kind of hearing impairment. That's around 18% of the population that is served by less than 5%
2: of the shows needs people to speak up and say, no, way! I want to make sure that my venue is accessible and I want to make sure that everybody can come see the show. I understand that some people don't get that luxury of choice and, and you get offered a room and it's either yes or no. And you, if you want to do Edinburgh, you have to say yes. But I think it's one of those things that eventually it would be nice if people are not punished for being like, hey, maybe I'd like
0: to have disabled people come see the show. Maybe that's a good idea. Artists can play their part, no pun intended. In 2018, when Christina Murdoch realized she didn't have an accessible venue, she spoke to her venue, Underbelly, and they were able to provide an accessible venue once a week. She also had captioned and relaxed performances. So if you're an artist thinking of doing a Fringe show and don't get offered an accessible venue, then talk to your venue and they may be able to help. The Fringe Society also has a guide on how to make your show accessible on their website. You can find a link in the show notes. In 2018, UN's Guide, a disabled access charity, awarded the French Society the Spirit of Inclusion Award for work to improve access across the festival. UN's Guide also reviews access in theatre across the UK. You can find a link to UN's Guide in the show notes.
2: Yeah, I, I definitely think it's getting better. I think the way I've described it previously is it's getting better. Not It's not quite as quick as we would like it to be improving, but it is improving. And I think that's important. And I think it does come from more disability on TV, more representation in media, you know, radio, whatever it is, comedians doing their thing. Because so many people have come up to me, not just to send but in my whole career, have been like, I really want to give stand-up a go. How do I give it a go? And sometimes my honest answer is that you're going to struggle because, I, as I say, I'm very lucky in the fact that I can get out of my chair and I can climb up a flight of stairs and I can carry my chair up a flight of stairs but most disabled people can't do that and most open mic gigs need you to do that and so it's a really difficult thing and then it's also difficult when you consider the fact that you need to be on a stage if you're in a wheelchair because otherwise most of the people in the audience can't see you and all of these kind of things are really difficult to sort of navigate when you're new because when you're new you have no weight or Gravitas or or reason for anybody to say, oh yeah, we'll make sure there's a ramp for you because there's a hundred people applying for that gig. Why would a promoter go, oh, it's a person that I've never heard of? I don't know if they're going to be funny. I'm going to cause myself a huge amount of hassle, and it might not be worth it. And so, it's a really tricky balance.
0: After the break, we hear about one company's eye-opening journey at the Fringe and their passion to give a voice to the underrepresented in theatre.
1: Edinburgh is a very white city. So you get there and that's the first thing that you see. And then there's like this general annoyance that the locals have to the fest- towards the festival, which I get because we're loud and come for a whole month and set up camp in their city. So fair enough. But still, they know that you're an artist because you go around for all your parties and stuff and you as it is get a weird look. And then being brown, that obviously gets taken in a certain type of way. And you just don't see any other South Asians around. You don't see any other black people around. And it's, it's, it's weird, especially if you're from London. It's a real shock to the system. Because Edinburgh is a big city. I've been to Manchester. It's quite diverse. Been to Liverpool and it's quite diverse. Bristol, diverse. So I really didn't expect it to be as white as it was. And that was hard. I'm Sarah Vigis. I'm the senior producer at Nouveau Riche and the creative producer at Sarah Vigis Productions.
0: When Nouveau Riche made its Fringe debut in 2018, it did so out of a profound need for representation and diversity on stage.
1: Ryan Kelly Cameron, our artistic director, he was like, there's no space for me, essentially my friends, my people, to make work. And I'm not seeing our work on stages. There was a real lack of diversity. So he started off this company because other people weren't giving him jobs other people weren't giving him a chance and he was like okay cool if i can't get a seat at their table let me just create my own so that's how Nuvarish started they created the company as a necessity for that but also because there's this thing called the untapped award that new darama theater run. i've been running for a really long time and they were going to apply for that with queens of sheba go up to Edinburgh and as part of that there's one section that's if you have a company name please put it here and the way NDT works is they support companies and collectives so that was born from oh cool we need a company but also this makes sense to do because no one else is allowing us in to their company so let's create our own And it was essentially him and his friends. And then they got the Untapped Award, went up to Edinburgh, developed Queens of Sheba. It did really well. And we have, apart from the COVID years, we've been up to Edinburgh every year since. Since their first show at The Fringe, Nouveau Riche has gone
0: on to win awards and accolades beyond The Fringe. In 2023, they received two Olivier Award nominations, the highest honour in UK theatre, for the show Black Boys Who Consider Suicide When The Hue Gets Too Heavy, which played on The West
1: End. We focus on bringing black and global majority stories to stage, stories that haven't been told before and that depart from the traditional Western ways of storytelling. We support a lot of Black and Globe majority artists, most of them like putting their first show on stage or writing their first show. And I guess we sit in that middle ground of growing and upscaling what might be known as community theatre or subsidised theatre even into like commercial landscapes. Our last show for Black Boys was hugely successful starting at New Diorama Theatre in a small 80 seat space. And then sold out there, subsequently transferred to the Royal Court, sold out there, and then transferred to West End's Apollo and sold out there. And I think obviously it's great to sell out these brilliant venues, but I think like at the core of our work is bringing our audiences to the theatre and making sure that they feel safe and heard and welcomed and like it their space. So we turn any space we're in into our space so that our communities feel welcome.
0: I asked Sarah how and what they do to make their communities feel
1: welcomed. So the best example, the one I liked the most, is at NDT. NDT is new diorama theater. They allowed us to get K Rafai in. Who does this? project called the smiling boys project and he goes into these school like state schools who have a majority black boys and um, takes them through this workshop it all surrounds happiness and what makes you smile but like he uses photography because that's his medium and then the whole thing ends with this exhibition of all the boys and he takes pictures of them smiling so he very kindly lent us some of the photos and we hung them up all around the theater we had a party night where we had like a DJ come in and all new very shows, whenever we have a press night or a party night, we get a DJ in and it's always like the best party. We had, the theatre got in like Ray and Nephew for audiences because it's a common drink and a lot of theatres don't have Ray and Nephew but it's like just a thing where like you recognise it and it's oh cool that's part of my culture. This is possibly something that's outside of just the black gloom majority culture but there was an announcement at the end that allowed people to just sit in the theatre for however long there. we created a lot of self-care guides which had black male therapists specifically some free some paid and those were shared around and we had like really clear trigger warnings for the performance because yes there's suicide in the title but also just to people know there is suicide mentioned in the show and so much more than that we tried to make sure that anything that could be a trigger was covered in that and I strongly believe that content warnings and trigger warnings are really important moving forward when we went to the west end we had a massive speaker in the foyer playing like afrobeat and drill and all of that sort of music that you don't normally hear in a theatre space, but it suited this show. Our audiences loved it. You know how stressful it can be
0: rushing to a show and fearing you'll be late? Well, Nouveau Riche takes a different approach to start times.
1: We were also a lot more lax with starting times because I guess that audience is used to like probably going to the cinema and not really the theatres. Like they, they, a lot of them turned up at half seven. So we had cues and cues at 7 30. sometimes the show started at 8, which we were expecting. And there was a lot of conversations about, okay, do we put an earlier time? But then we're like, no, we're lying to our audience. We put 7.30 and expect to start later and that's fine.
0: Prior to joining Nouveau Riche, Sarah had her own unique audience experience thanks to the company. One that reshaped her perspective as someone who had practically lived their life in the theatre.
1: The first show I ever saw of Nouveau Riches was Queen's of Sheba at Soho Theatre. And that was also the first time that I was sat in in a theatre in an audience and I was not the minority it was full of black majority people There were south asian people and it was visceral I I can remember being so emotional after because I was like people are reacting to this they're loud and they're cheering and they're responding and something in them has come alive seeing this show and then like just the buzz afterwards and the energy was it was so different to any anything I've ever seen I think there's just this immense joy of seeing yourself on stage and your stories and your truth laid out on stage and seeing that like other people, like they're reacting in the same way to you, meaning they feel this and you don't feel alone. You feel part of a community of people. And I think there's nothing quite like that.
0: So when she went to the Fringe for the first time in 2022 with the company, the experience was harder than she was expecting.
1: And we went up and I vowed that I would never be back again. Why would you never want to go back again? It was a lot. It was really stressful. Wasn't easy. It wasn't just not easy on me, but it wasn't easy on my cast and my team. How so? And I, there was a lot of racism, a lot of microaggressions, a real lack of like our people up there and our communities up there. Someone was telling me this year that was a black man, he was like, I had to jump in, a, in an Uber and dro- drove about 45 minutes to an hour outside of Edinburgh to get his hair done while he was there because he was there for the whole month. And it's things like that. Like, there isn't a hair in sight. There isn't an off-license that has any of our spices or food or people. Things came to a head for the cast and
0: company when the microaggressions and racism didn't stop at the festival door.
1: A member of staff from another venue who invited the cast onto his show said to them very casually, Oh yeah, I can refer to you as colored, right? That's fine. Colored is an okay term. That's the term I've grown up using. He was quite old. So that was maybe the level of it. And then the spiral from there was, who do we go to? This is a serious problem. I wouldn't consider that a microaggression. I would consider that racism. There was no proper system to report that to. He still came back the following year. He was there last this summer gone. I was in London when my cast told me this. I was at a loss of what to offer them. I can only offer you my my listening year and I was really like I don't know where to go from this I don't know what the procedure is or how to take this further so I was like how would you like this taken forward what is the ideal for you and then they all were like we'd really like for it to go further up and for people to be told about this so I did the necessary telling the venue that he was at and then telling our venue and we obviously wrote a call to action at the stage then. Published. As a result of this incident, Nouveau Riche wrote an open letter, which
0: was then published in the stage. In it, the company addressed lack of funding and pay, upfront costs, and also highlighted their experiences at the Fringe in terms of lack of diversity and safety for Black and global majority artists. In part, their statement said, Quote, throughout the festival, our company has had to work twice as hard, being not just artists, but also activists. The cast has reflected feeling like the token black women, very often performing to mostly white audiences, being mistaken for actors from other productions with black actors, and no effort was made to learn their names. One such incident was when a man who wanted to interview the cast asked the cast if he could call them colored. Although the team apologized, They used his age as an excuse for his lack of education. The constant fight and expectation to educate those around as well as performing over 20 shows has taken a toll on the team. This has been disheartening for our cast, which has tarnished their first experience of Edinburgh Fringe. On the Edinburgh Fringe website, it says, quote, anyone who has a story to tell and a venue to perform in can put on a show here. This quote truly sums up the essence of the festival. There is no limitation to what graces the fringe stages. However, we, artists of color, like many marginalized groups, struggle to find truth in this statement. This does not truly reflect the struggle and the financial strain for artists of color and working class artists to produce a show at the Edinburgh Fringe, end quote. The full statement can be found on the stage's website and will be linked in the show notes of this episode. In 2023, the Fringe Society approached nouveau Riche to be anti-racist consultants for the festival. The, The Fringe is an incredibly
3: diverse place in lots of different ways, but Edinburgh itself is not necessarily reflective of that. So the disconnect between the artists and the audience can sometimes feel quite stark. And we get artists that talk to us about not seeing themselves in their own audience, and that's got to be challenging at times. I'm Lindsay Jackson, and I am the Deputy Chief Executive of the Edinburgh Festival Fringe Society. Priority with Nouveau Riche is to acknowledge that we can't just broadcast to an entire community of people and expect them to engage, that we need to have an active conversation. So Nuvorish's job really is, in my understanding of it, is to help make sure that those conversations are taking place. And we don't want to just hear from Nuvorish, we want Nuvorish to bring others to the table so people can talk about their lived experience and can share their own experience. And there's a lot of work to do there. And I think a lot of the work that needs to be done is actually about helping artists and audience find one another. But there's a lot to do generally in that area. And the same goes for disabled artists.
0: As part of the partnership, Sarah has been engaging with Black and global majority artists, gathering their personal stories and experiences.
1: It was really hard emotionally because I was obviously chatting to people, a lot of global majority people, about their experiences. And it was hard because I had people being like, I had four people in my show yesterday. Or someone said that they went to one of the fringe events and there was like no one of color there. And no one was interested in talking to him or hearing what he had to say, or someone was like, I had no reviewers in, even though I've invited people. And if you put aside whether the art is good or not, even things that get one star reviews, two star reviews, like they get audiences in. So, yeah, it was like really an emotional toll to obviously I was producing my own shows and supporting the Untapped shows and then also doing this. I think it's really important. I told Sarah a lot of shows try to get
0: reviewers in and don't. What's the difference?
1: I think it maybe isn't that in isolation. It's that there are very few reviewers of colour, like global majority reviewers, as it is in the data industry, but even fewer that go up to fringe because of the costs and also because there aren't that many shows with people of colour to review. There are. There's, I think there was a lot more this year than there was last year and it grows, but still to their time is probably spent better off being in London. So that could be a factor. It just could be a reason of non-global majority reviewers thinking, oh, maybe I won't get it or maybe I'm not the right person to review it. So I'm not going to go. Fringe is really difficult. It's tough to be like, oh, the reason is because I'm a person of colour. But when you are POC, That's how it feels. And there's no disregarding that. It feels like it's because of the colour of your skin. Because... You can't even say that, oh, no, I just made a bad show because the reviewers haven't come in to review it to know whether it's a hit or a miss. In
0: 2018, the Fringe of Color initiative was started to address the lack of black and people of color shows and the disproportionate lack of promotion and support they receive in comparison to productions by white performers. According to their website, the project began as a database of shows and developed into a free ticket scheme in 2019, providing people of color with tickets to attend shows by by performers of color at the Edinburgh Fringe and beyond. In 2020, the project became a film festival called Fringe of Color Films. They still keep a database, and best I could find the only database tracking shows at the Fringe with global majority in persons of color-led shows. According to their database, which is self-reporting, there were 43 shows with 50% or more performers or speakers on stage that were black or persons of color. That was across comedy, theater, music, Music and performance installation. That's forty three shows out of over thirty five hundred.
3: There is something about the expectation of artists that Edinburgh looks like London does, and it just doesn't. There just isn't that the communities we have an enormous Chinese community, but actually we have a very small African and Afro Caribbean community in Scotland more broadly, but in Edinburgh specifically. Edinburgh is the most diverse it ever is during the festival, and you see that with certainly within the artists. So. What we don't capture is any useful demographic data from our artists, largely because. There isn't a point at which to do that. Everybody thinks registration, but the way that registration works, it's quite often not the artist doing that work for them. And we don't want to get in the way of ultimately the objective of getting your show registered. So we've got some work to do in trying to capture meaningful demographic data because people ask this question through lots of different lenses. What's the female representation? What's the non-binary? What's the LGBTQ? We're definitely lacking that information.
0: Looking at the data in a broader context, according to a research briefing by the House of Commons, 16% of the UK population Population is from an ethnic minority. Various studies have this figure rising to around 27% by 2051. A study published in 2021 by Arts Council England showed that 93% of National Portfolio Organization audiences are white. National Portfolio Organizations are nearly a 1,000 arts organizations and theaters that receive funding from the Arts Council. Arts Council England did emphasize when this was published that the data was gathered during the pandemic, so it affected how the evidence was gathered, but added that more work needed to be done. I tried to find a more recent study, but couldn't. Considering how the current demographics are and how the UK is expected to get more diverse, are UK theaters and organizations missing out on a large number of potential audience members and potential stories being shown on stage? In my conversation with Sarah, we actually didn't talk about the fringe specifically for a while. We mostly talked about theater, some of the unspoken rules, some norms that need a middle ground, and making it more accessible and approachable in general. The first time you go to the theater could be when you're five or when you're 55. So how are you supposed to know what to expect, especially if you come from a family or a community that doesn't often go to the theater?
1: There's all these rules that we have when we go to the theater and you just don't know them if you don't know. And I think it's like any event, so like going to the football, there's a set of rules and expectations. Going to a museum, going to a concert or a festival... There is like a like a ritual to all of these events that you follow. And there's a way of or an order of things that might happen and the things that might be available and the things that you are allowed to bring in or not bring in. And I think it's making that clear and really transparent. Like, okay, cool. Like there might be songs in this, but don't sing along. Or there'll be a time for you to sing along if that's the rules. And I think there are like different types of things. Theatre people, some are very old schoolers. You must come dressed in a certain way and you must be quiet throughout the whole show and you cannot leave and you cannot re-enter and you must not be on your phone whatsoever. But then there is also this middle ground. I was very much like, oh my God, do not use your phone in the theatre. And then I was dog sitting and the whole time I was like, I just want to see if there's any messages. And if you've got kids or you're a carer, obviously if you're going to pick up a phone call, don't but if it's something small and quiet, is that okay? And is it too much to ask for other audience
0: members to understand that everyone has very normal things happen to them while they're in the theater?
1: Oh, this really annoyed me. I was seeing Dear England at the National and I had gone to the toilet before the show, still needed to go to the toilet halfway through the first act, waited until the transition. I was like so quiet, bent down, et cetera. And some man still had the audacity to be like, oh, really? Now, really? And I was like, I'm allowed to leave. I spent majority of my life in theatres. Empty theatres, full theatres, tech, tours, everything. I still felt so uncomfortable. It made me feel a certain way and it spoilt my experience. It made me feel excluded, really and truly. The front of house staff were lovely. They were like, oh, are you okay? I was like, yeah, I just really need a wee. And then they showed me where I could go back and stand until the interval and all of that kind of stuff. It's a very normal thing to need to go to the toilet. People do it in cinema all the time and it's so fine. It's a very normal thing to be triggered by something and want to leave. And I think that's fine and I think as theatre gets more bold and is taking more risks, you can't be shitty to people if they want to leave because you don't know what they're going through, whether, you know, they're having a real visceral reaction to the stuff on stage and theatre should be bold and risky but yes we have a duty of care to our audience at the same time. When it comes to the fringe. Sarah hopes her and
0: Nouveau Riche's experiences can help
1: others who are looking to come. Part of the the Fringe Society partnership that we're doing is we want people to just be aware of and know what to expect at the very least. I think that's a knowledge share that we can do because of our experiences at Fringe previously, that we can just be like, this is what to expect. This is how we protect our artists. Just think about how you how you're protecting and. Like the well-being and mental health of your artists, what you're putting in place. We are not the be-all and end-all of the global majority theatre makers. So I'm definitely doing a lot of feedback sessions with people to hear wider thoughts. I'm not Black, so I can't speak for that community. And also, like, I'm not East Asian, I can't speak for that community. And there's a huge East Asian theatre-making community that goes up to Fringe. So definitely speaking to shows and groups of people I could get and like actors together, and producers, and directors and that kind of stuff. And people from different global majority communities to hear their thoughts and their feedback on what works. Like I've got an idea of a plan of action for next year that I'm hoping we can put in place. Small things, like nothing massive. I think there's like a structural thing that needs to change, which we have no control over. But if we can put little things in place, then I'm all for it. So
0: considering all this, microaggression, racism and lack of reviewers, why would black and global majority artists want to keep coming or try to come to the fringe in the future?
1: I think fringe has the unique ability to grow your work off the back of quite a few shows that either I was supporting or working on. There's been relationships developed and I know every time I've gone to fringe, I've met like the most wonderful people. I've fostered new relationships and friendships and gone on to work with people or they've given me work or I've hired them or built a relationship with a venue in a regional theatre that I probably wouldn't have done outside of Fringe because I live in London. Those benefits are unique to Fringe and I guess that's why I keep going back. And yeah, I wouldn't deter the global majority of people from going. I think if you can afford it, go. It's, it is it is the biggest opportunity for a theatre person, it's, especially if you're early to mid-career. I think it's brilliant. It goes
0: along with the other reason Aaron told me why he goes to the Fringe. You might remember in episode two, Aaron said while he might have one crazy month during the Fringe, Fringe allows him to have 11 nice months.
2: I think the other thing about Fringe that I don't think is widely talked about is the fact that it's such a good yardstick for measuring your own growth as a person. Like professionally, personally, emotionally, mentally, all of that stuff, you're tested to such an extent. That this year, I can see a real marked difference between how I interact with myself compared to last year, compared to this year. And I think that's really important. And I'm not saying do the Edinburgh Festival because it will test you so much that you have almost have a mental breakdown. And then when you don't have a mental breakdown the next year, you'll feel good about yourself. But I do think that having that experience that is so unique gives you that chance to actually recognize this is what you've done in the last year, professionally, personally, and and. Emotionally, mentally, and all that kind of stuff. I think that's really great.
0: In the UK, The Fringe is a sort of poster child for theater in general, the good and the bad. At its best, The Fringe raises new voices and issues to the forefront. At its worst, voices and issues get drowned out. The Fringe also acts as a facilitator of not just new work, but of conversations. Conversations about identity, representation, and how the world is reflected on stage. But these conversations need to happen beyond the fringe, beyond three weeks in August. And they are beginning to, in some places. Because when you have more diverse voices being heard on stage, you have more diverse voices being heard off stage.
2: I think the, the biggest improvement, I would say, would be the generalized appreciation of diversity. And I think that's a really important thing to remember is that yes there are still the odd bill where it is or maybe more than the odd bill but there are still bills on the comedy circuit where it's four straight cis white men and you know what there probably will always be some of them going around i personally don't like that i don't like it when i am the only bit of diversity on the bill and i think from an audience perspective even if i'm going to see a show i don't want to see four of the same comic do four of the same jokes for 20 minutes. So. It is one of those things that, generally speaking, I think more and more people recognize that diversity is a good thing and it's not about quotas anymore and it's not about just appearing to look woke and all of that bullshit, but it's just that the comedy shows are better when you have people from different voices and different experiences telling you about their lives.
0: Next time on the final episode of Fringe Benefits Edinburgh...
3: I feel like I don't have anything left to give to 2023, and I'm like, very much ready for it to be Christmas and just go home for a week and then start afresh in the new year. As stress levels increase, it becomes more difficult to find and trust your instinct and you make decisions that when you look back on, you think, I maybe would have made different choices.
0: Fringe Benefits Edinburgh was written, produced, edited, and hosted by me, Molly Merwin. Script consultant, Tom Noonan. Original music by Colette Jonas supporting producer, Alex Merwin. If you liked this episode, please like and follow or subscribe wherever you listen. So you know when new episodes come out and maybe give us a five star rating. It helps continue podcasts like these. Thanks.